What's up, everybody? It's Chloe Pavlik. And I'm Brandon Rhodes, and you're tuned into The Work. This week, we had the pleasure of speaking with Adisu Demisi, executive director of More Than a Vote. He's worked with Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and most recently was the campaign strategist for Cory Booker's presidential campaign. Adisu, thank you so much for joining the work today with Brandon and I. And as you probably know, we always like to start it off with our pinnacle question. When did you realize that you were Black? Uh, <laughs> uh, man, I love that question. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it was pretty young. Part of it was probably when I went to school with my name. I have my, I'm Ethiopian of Ethiopian descent. And obviously my name is very Ethiopian. And so when your friends and your your classmates and your teacher can't pronounce your name uh, uh, when you're in kindergarten or whatever, uh, it certainly makes you realize you're different uh, in some way. And I think that's what I realized I was, you know, of African descent and that was a unique thing. And ultimately that I was black, but it's a really good question. I, I, I can't, I wish I could remember the exact moment, but I definitely remember the early days of school and feeling different from everybody else. I went to predominantly uh, uh, white uh, schools and uh, uh, that was a moment. Yeah. Talk, I mean, talk about that a little bit more because, you know, Chloe and I both had similar experiences of growing up maybe in an inner city, then moving to a white school and seeing those differences between it. So, you know, tell us a little bit about where you're from and what those dynamics were and how they influenced you. Yeah, so I actually was born in Canada, uh, which is, um, and yeah, I was born in Canada. And so my sort of my younger years were, uh, were in Toronto, which is actually a very cosmopolitan place. Like, I mean, folks know uh, who are Raptors fans and what have you that, you know, folks talk about Toronto, but it is, uh, it is a very diverse place. Um, so I, that's why I hesitated when I said I went to a predominantly white school, because it was very diverse, though predominantly white, um, with not just black folks, but Asian folks, you know, black folks that aren't just, you know, from North America, but a lot of Caribbean and West India folks. So uh, I, I grew up in a very diverse uh, uh, place, uh, just not America and not sort of traditionally diverse. I moved to the States to Atlanta when I was 11. And uh, uh, sort of that was my, in a lot of ways to answer your first question, Chloe, that was a, diff a whole different deal than yep. what I dealt with. <laughs> When I was, when I was, you know, in my, in my youth. So my adolescence was in Atlanta, which was like black and white, you know, American, Southern, all those other things. And Atlanta was on the come up really in the nineties, you know, the Olympics came and the Braves were good. And, uh, uh, you know, it was a growing, booming city and dealing with a lot of the stuff that, you know, the South had dealt with for decades before that. So that was a whole different kind of experience in a lot of ways, my first awakening to black, white politics, racial politics, and obviously America and the American black experience as well. Um, so it was a, it was sort of, and that was, you know, from 11 to when I went off to college and what have you. So it was, it was two halves of it. I, Canada was a much different deal than when I moved to the South. Well, it's funny, too, when you talk about Atlanta and then when you just think about Georgia in general. So like Atlanta to me is like the black Mecca, especially now. And but when I think about Georgia, when I was growing up and I remember I visited there, I'll never forget. That was the first time I got the question, what are you like? It, they couldn't wrap their mind around that I was mixed with black and white. Mm -hmm. So I do want to go back to when you talked about your name, because I feel like as a kid, the most embarrassing thing is when people get your name wrong. So did you alter, did you make people call you by a nickname for a long time or did they automatically give you a nickname or were you confident enough to be like, no, my name is Adisu? Uh, uh, 
definitely nickname, definitely get people gave me nicknames. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, in retrospect, that was coping, a coping mechanism. I was never, and am never, uh, not proud of my heritage, my name, my race, you name it. But when you're 15 years old, 18 years old, I remember when I went to college, uh, most people from college don't know me as a DSU. They know me as a boo. That was my nickname back then. Uh, uh, a couple uh, my nickname that I actually use now, which is one I love is deuce. Uh, but part, it, but part of the, the derivation of that is when people can't pronounce my name off, often they call me a deuce, not a deuce. Um, so, so there's a lot wrapped up in all that, but I don't mind nickname for what it's worth. Like it's fine. Um, but as I've gotten older, no doubt about it, I have, uh, I'm more assertive about, you know, wanting people to pronounce my name. Right. Uh, because it's respect and somebody, you know, and it's, and I don't mind that people can't pronounce it. I get that. Like it's unfamiliar to folks, but somebody once said, I forget who it was, is if you can figure out how to pronounce Tchaikovsky, you can figure out how to, how to pronounce Adisu, right? So, so, uh, or whatever, there's Russian names, there's Eastern European names, there's, uh, there's Western European names that are not common to America and you figure out how to do those. So why not the African ones too? Absolutely. And we've seen we, we've seen the media uh, kind of use those mispronunciations on purpose, you know, yeah. whether it's different candidates in Obama or Kamala Harris or other examples like that. So I think it, it is important and there can be some, you know, thinly or not so thinly veiled racism associated with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of shifting gears into, you know, politics. Right. So I think. You know, growing up, I would see a lot of people or friends or family members be very turned off by politics or just even the word politics can be a turnoff to a lot of people. So (laughs) when you were thinking about making it your career, like what really made you want to use politics as your vehicle to kind of make change on on society? It's a really good question. It's not, it honestly is not come from my family or anything like that. My parents, my dad has passed away. My parents were, as I was growing up, very active uh, politically and otherwise and sort of aware, I should say, not active, aware politically and made me watch debates and made me watch, you know, come with them to vote, et cetera. So I had that sort of instilled in me, but it was not sort of in my blood. They weren't in the streets marching. They were, they certainly didn't work in politics or in, in the political sphere at all. I think it came, it was a little bit myself sort of as I grew up and I, and I got engaged, I just found myself liking it and being interested in it academically and otherwise. Um, but I think ultimately I have found that I, I am very bad as a, as a professional, as a human being, frankly, when I am not passionate about what I'm doing, when I don't feel like I'm making a difference. Money is not enough for me to motivate me. Uh, you know, prestige is not enough to motivate me. What gets me up in the morning is, is, and what gets me to work every day is trying to make a difference in my community for my community in, in ways, uh, sometimes I can't even see. And so that's just what motivates me. And I feel like politics and campaigns and what I'm doing with more than a vote is going to change people's lives. And sometimes maybe my own, maybe my children's, maybe somebody I don't even know, but that's what, that's what keeps me going, you know, in a lot of ways. And I know that's not true for everybody, but I've seen it work large and small in ways, large and small. We can talk about that if you want to, but it's true. It can, it can make a difference. And, um, if I can make some kind of difference in, a, in somebody's life or in my own, right? Uh, uh, I feel like I've done something worthwhile. So I want to spend my time in that kind of way. I love that you talk about your passion because 
you know this and we all know this, someone who hates their job, essentially, it feels like they hate their life because that consumes so much of their day and everything that you're doing. And if you don't want to, like you said, get up every day to do what you love, then things start to feel meaningless. Mm -hmm. So I do want to focus on because I know you've worked with obviously having heavy hitting Democrats from Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Cory Booker, um, even Joe Biden. How did you break in and what was that path like? I broke in at the bottom. <laughs> I started from the bottom. I mean, I was a, I was a field organizer, which I, I hesitate to even call it the bottom because those are the folks who, you know, make things move. And exactly. You know, those are the folks who uh, keep things going, which, you know, and for those who don't know, these are the folks who are making phone calls, knocking on doors, recruiting volunteers, one-on-one -on -one conversations in communities to change people's minds about who they're going to vote for or that they're going to vote at all. And so that's where I started for most of my 20s, most of the, you know, first uh, five, six, seven years of my career, I was the guy making phone calls five hours a day for six months, you know, just grinding it out, uh, knocking on doors, organizing volunteers. And ultimately, my, I had two big breaks, I guess. One was I ran the entire state, get out the vote operation for Barack Obama in 2008 in Ohio, which ended up being sort of the tipping point state for that election. He won big, but that was the, the sort of state that put him over the edge and people realized he was going to be president, which was an amazing moment. Still probably the one of the best moments of my career was the, when they called Ohio for Obama in 08. And then the president asked me to run his, uh, to be the political director for his, or president-elect, for his um, political organization. Uh, when he went into the White House, he kept an external political organization, and I was the political director for that. And so that just kind of catapulted me into the second half of my career. But um, but I started from the bottom, you know, and I think that's advice for anybody in any career. Like, I don't think there's any substitute. If you try to jump in and be like a strategist or at the top, like, no, you got to put in the work. It's true in sports. It's true in politics. It's true everywhere. And uh, I definitely paid my dues when I was 23, 24 years old in the middle of nowhere doing things in grimy hotel rooms, motel rooms, sleeping overnight. Like I, I was, I was there uh, to be able to get into rooms like the ones I'm in now. Yeah. That's a, that's a dope story, man. And, and shout out to Drake started from the bottom. One of my favorite songs. <laughs> um, so, so walk us through the process because obviously you had done a lot. You've been very successful. Um, obviously we all followed um, the Cory Booker campaign very closely. So you, you've done a lot and, and kind of risen through the ranks. Um, but walk us through the process of getting involved with more than a vote. Like, how did that come about? You know, what, what were the steps and, and kind of what made you say, hey, this is the right next thing for me to do? So, yes, I, I ran Cory Booker's campaign for president. Um, we dropped out on, uh, it seems like another lifetime, but it was January 13th of this year. Uh, <laughs> so not that long ago, 10 months ago. Um, but uh, uh, I kind of didn't know what I was going to do. Um, you know, to take a step back, I... I worked for Secretary Clinton, as you mentioned, Chloe, in 2016. I ran Governor Newsom here in California, our governor's campaign in 2018. And uh, then I went immediately to run Corey's campaign in 2019. And so I was pretty tired, to be honest with you, after four straight years of working on campaigns full time, seven days a week. So I wanted to take some time off. But in February, I got back and um, uh, I don't even remember who gave me the call. It actually was a friend of mine from the, from a campaign past said, you might want to look into this thing. I don't know if it's real or not, but 
LeBron and Maverick are looking for somebody to help them, you know, put together a, a plan and a, a, for a political organization. I was like, I don't believe you, but <laughs> I will return this phone call. And uh, so at, in, at the end of February, I flew down to LA and met with them. And um, they told me about the vision for more than a vote. And I was like, okay, so this is real. I'm actually in a room with Maverick and, <laughs> and we're talking about this. Um, but then COVID hit and things kind of Hit, like the world hit pause, but ultimately it was the the killing of George Floyd that I think reminded Mav, LeBron, me, all of us that this organization needed to exist. And um, it really was, you know, from Memorial Day to the first week of June, we were on Zoom calls every day, putting together the plan. Uh, and I had already obviously planted the seed back in February and we got it off the ground in early, Mar early uh, June. Yeah. Well, when I think about the NBA strike two that happened right after the Jacob Blake shooting and you, it seems like more than a vote, really spearheaded um, making all the NBA arenas become polling places. What was the thought process behind that and how did that come about? Was it like you, a phone call to LeBron, like, hey, this is the demands that I think you guys should ask for or how did that work? So we had actually started on the arena project in June, July. And I got to give credit to coach Pierce of the Hawks who, uh, shout out Atlanta, uh, who, for whom this was a lot of, a lot of this was his idea. Uh, so he and the Hawks, um, along with Jocelyn Benson, who is the secretary of state of Michigan had been talking to the Pistons. Uh, sorry, I get got another call. Coming up. Uh, so Jocelyn had been talking to the Pistons, uh, uh, Coach Pierce had been talking to the Hawks and we sort of came about in, this is again in June and July and said, this is something that should be universal. And so uh, with Jocelyn's help, with Coach Pierce's help, we elevated the issue and started talking to the Bucks and a whole bunch of other arenas. So I say all that as a precursor to what happened in the, in the player uh, strike. Um, we'd already sort of done it, you know, for a month or so at that point, a month and a half. And so what, when the, I have to also give the players union a lot of credit for this. They were a big part of that conversation as well, but we through LeBron brought it to the table and said, look, this should be part of the deal. Like our arenas are uniquely empty. Uh, they're not usually empty. Um, there's usually a game on election night most years, but just happened or in October most years, but just happened to be the case that we have empty arenas. They're perfect spaces for voting and the NBA should be promoting this, not just individual coaches, individual players, external organizations like our own. So we did help bring it to the table as part of those negotiations, but it was happening beforehand. And it was a big part of one of our first initiatives, the Protect Home Court initiative that a whole bunch of um, players and coaches have been involved with. Yeah, man, that's incredible. One, just that you all were able to start in June and, and kind of spin up the organization so fast and have such a big impact. Tell the B. It was right, right. Yeah. And, and not only that, but be at the center of a historic moment, right? I think all of us um, have seen the NBA's leadership and even when just starting with COVID and how they were one of the early people to kind of shut down the season and then all the way to the strike and, and the players being the leading voice. So to, for your org and for you to be at the, the center of that is incredible. Um, so, so I'm curious outside of, you know, getting all the polling places, like what are some of the other accomplishments with more than a vote that, you know, you're excited about or that you would like to share with the people? Yeah, so we've been, you know, our mission just to take a step back is to fight voter suppression, particularly voter suppression targeted at black folks. And so, you know, one of the early things that Mav and I talked about way back in February, and certainly we talked about in, in June is that 
we can't solve the whole problem as powerful as these uh, athletes and artists are that are part of our coalition, but we can try to do the things that make the most sense for us that we can actually have some control over and can actually make a difference to help black people in America vote, vote safely, and ultimately turn them out to vote. So we started with our Protect Home Court Arena initiative. We moved on to partner with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund to recruit poll workers. And for those of you who don't know, most poll workers are over 60 years old traditionally, which obviously is the highest um, uh, risk uh, cohort for, for getting COVID. And so our mission was to get younger folks who listen to the LeBrons of the world, who listen to Damian Lillard and Patrick Mahomes to show up and take some of that energy from the streets to the polls and make sure that they're stepping in for their aunties and uncles and Grammys and, gram uh, and grandpas. So we've recruited over uh, 40,000 poll workers across the country, particularly targeted in um, areas with high black populations to step up and run their elections and make sure they run smoothly in a nonpartisan way. So that was called the We Got Next initiative with LDF. We've, uh, we've now turned to sort of thinking about two things. One is mobilizing folks to vote and just understanding the importance of the vote. Um, we put out an ad with uh, an organization called I Vote right after the season ended, uh, voiced over by Skylar Diggins um, uh, from Mercury, who, um, which basically says, look, we came to this bubble as the NBA players and WNBA players did to not just play, but to shine a spotlight on the issues. We did that. Now it's on y'all. Um, and so that ad is now being run nationally, really targeting young, probably a lot of the people who listen to this, young basketball fans, people of color primarily uh, uh, across the country in, in important states and districts. So we're going to run that and other mobilization efforts over the course of October leading into election day. And then one of the big last thing I'll say that we are uh, launching and very proud of is our anti-disinformation effort. There is so much bad information out there. Some of it unintentional, honestly, the memes that your uncle shares on Facebook, right? But some of it is being intentionally spread by people who want black people to not know the real information. And we have, you know, from the, the coalition of athletes that we have, we have the right messengers that people of color, young people of color, young black people listen to. And so we want to make sure they get good information. So everything from how to vote by mail, how to, you know, vote safely in person, uh, voting early in the rules in your state, given that our athletes have some credibility, we want to use that credibility to give good information. So go to morethanavote.org slash game plan. So, sorry to give a plug. We can go there, morethanavote.org slash game plan and uh, get the right information and also set up your voting plan now. I love that plug. And it's funny too, because Brandon and I, we were actually both trying to sign up to be poll workers. I'm from Ohio. Brandon's from Michigan, obviously. Uh, but Ohio, at least for where my city is, they're, they're all booked. So I was pretty sad about that. Uh, but well, it's, it's a good problem though. That's yeah, the good problem, great. right? Great. I'd rather than be overbooked than underbooked, right? That means that polling places aren't gonna get closed in the black neighborhoods and people are gonna be able to not stand in as many lines. So bad, 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 but good. Yeah, when I was on the phone with the lady, I was like, oh, I'm so sad, but I'm so happy, you know? So that worked out. But I do wanna know what's next for you all after the general election? It's a great question because um, I literally had a call about that this morning. And, you know, we Maverick made this very, very clear to me in the first meeting that, that we had, which is we do not want we're not a campaign. More than the vote is not a campaign. We're not an initiative. We're an organization. And we want to exist for the empowerment of black people and the 
uh, and the disassembly of, of systemic racism. That is a big project. <laughs> and and uh, there are a lot of pieces to that project, but we are going to continue into 2021 and, and beyond trying to address that, that those, those issues and doing it in a way not unlike what we've done this year, that's actually going to do what we can, not by, we're not going to end systemic racism alone, but we can take on pieces of it, whether it be economic empowerment for black people, uh, you know, police violence against black people, tearing down barriers to voting, which are still going to exist even after November. So we're starting to talk about sort of what is the next phase of that, but we are going to exist and our mission is going to be to, to end systemic racism. Our programs are going to be, you know, to bite off what we can chew and figure out what under that umbrella we can actually accomplish. And LeBron said this actually, I remember clearly after the strike and he said it multiple times over the playoffs, which is he's about a plan. He's not about, you know, <laughs> he's he, every organization that he's a part of commercial brand business, now nonprofit. He wants to make sure that we have a plan and we can be successful at it. So over the next couple of months, we're going to put that plan together and we're going to try to grow this organization to be a permanent part of the, you know, black political infrastructure. I absolutely love that. You know, I think that, you know, systemic racism, that's a huge challenge and it's a meaty problem to solve, but I'm glad we got, you know, some of the right people really focused on it. And um, we just wanted to, you know, thank you for taking time and we're excited to see the journey and follow along with you. Uh, but no, I appreciate you coming on the work. It, it was it was my pleasure. Now I got to, the one thing I got to do, I got to have a better answer for when I figured out I was black for next time. <laughs> but I appreciate you inviting me. Thanks for tuning into The Work. Make sure you subscribe on all your favorite podcast platforms. This week's work is to go to morethanavote.org slash game plan. Make sure you go there to get your voting game plan on lock. And we'll catch you next week.